Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. So it's time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett and I'll be here until 6 this evening. Today, US peace and disarmament activist Dr. Joseph Gerson. He was in Melbourne last week and I caught up with him here at the station here. Professor Gil Bohengren, deported from the Philippines, and Peter Murphy has met with him, I think it was last night, so we'll find out how he is going after his ordeal at the airport in Manila. IPAN, Independent, Peaceful and Australian Network, report with Bevan Ramsden, and Bevan, I found out, was actually one of the organisers of 3CR back in the early 70s. Part two of the history of Nauru with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan and we'll hear the history of Korea with Dr Tim Anderson. A weak journalist, but when our true blue Aussie values forged on the beaches of Sydney in 1788 when the first boat people arrived and honed sharply on a beach in Turkey thanks to a military disaster and finally tuned many times over through invasion after invasion from Vietnam to Afghanistan, Iraq to Korea and many others were expressed clearly, brought to a final solution by a bloke called Freezer, so called presumably because he's as cold as ice. Freezer hanging non-whites of the cutter Islam Party. Well, that true Blawazi value, hanging non-whites, was practiced by the first boat people, and for goodness sake, Freezer has to get some sort of marks. It takes a huge effort to prompt one notions that appalling Hoonsun to label you racist, a monumental effort, and even have the Minister for Concentration Camps raise a wire and sink the boats, and keeping us secure, Constable Peter Duffer, and his big Supremo Malcolm Tudor full, although that may be reversed shortly, and we'll return to that item gripping the nation, well, gripping the Canberra Press Gallery. Anyway, a huge effort for them to call you racist, inferring their constant comments about immigration, about no proper papers, queue-jumping illegal boat people, the post-1788 boat people, particularly black boat people, were not racist. Just a warning to steer clear of restaurants, avoid sitting there in constant fear, and don't go out after dark. Wonder if Freezer and the team see any irony at all in wanting a country that was 100% black when the first boat people arrived to continue a white, true blue Aussie policy. But did I hear Freezer in a moment of acute self-awareness admit he was adult or adult? Or or no, no, I've had another look at, no, not adult, Adolf. In order to stop the illegal boats, I got here on 19 boats, elected to the benches down the back on 19 votes, and not one of them black. On blacks, poor Donald, US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trample the poor, has been accused or accused of using the N-word as they keep calling it, suggesting he may be a, a trifle racist, leading Donald diplomatically to call his accuser accuser a low-life dog, presumably the worst low-life dog in history ever, ever. 
but he said it very nicely. Well, tweeted it very nicely, and note he didn't use the N-word. And the racist accusation can't be true, because he said he was sorry Aretha Franklin had died. I say a little prayer for me. Although his sympathy may dissipate if some advisor informs him she was black and was involved in the civil rights movement. And as an aside, music outlets were hard at work Friday morning doubling the price tags on all Aretha Franklin albums. And then I discovered I had something in common with her, because former USR Big Supremo Barack for Change, Change, Change said one of her performances had reduced him to tears. And I know every time I sing... Uh, but Donald shed tears for those US of citizens being made great again, affected by Turkey imposing tariffs on certain products. Just because Donald has imposed tariffs on certain Turkish products, like all of them. And Donald said it was disgraceful that Turkey had retaliated because the US of actions had been for national security reasons. Apparently they must have thought Turkey was exporting bombs or something. He, he didn't quite explain, but he has a point because it's the US OBS role to supply the world with bombs or something. Actions had been for security reasons, whereas Turkey's retaliation had been for retaliation. Well, yes, Donald, retaliation, surprise, surprise, means retaliation. See, satire can't compete with the old Donald. He's a big, tweeting bundle of logic. But sometimes we're faced with impossible choices. Take this trade dispute between Donald and Turkey's big supremo heard the votes again. Donald versus heard the votes again. Donald heard the votes again. Who do we bearing for? It's impossible. The best we can say is they deserve each other. We mentioned last week there are cynics, ideological fanatics, who claim all the problems Malcolm, his fossils minister, Josh Fry, dem icebergs, his predecessor, tiny a bit more for the bosses, with his balanced views, and the team are tackling over the negative energy policy emanate from privatising the public assets, showing how irrational ideological fanaticism can be. Any wonder it upsets poor tiny, we commented. Well, those fanatics were put in their place this week, with the remotest suggestion that privatising public assets with its promise of guaranteed lower prices had something to do with higher prices stretched irreputably. True Blue was the Energy Profits Council Supremo Sarah McNamara Renewables laid the blame fairly and squarely with government, with the public sector, forcing the closure of fossils and more particularly, quote, direct. Add to that the absence of a national policy framework and you have the recipe for high energy prices and a lack of investment in like-for-like -like replacement power stations. Uh, like for like, Sarah, you mean replace coal with coal? Certainly, fossils for fossils. Uh, but the government does support coal for coal. It even expresses its faith in your market forces by wanting to finance its own for you. That's true, but it doesn't support it enough. We need more incentives like the government funding our investments with that sort of support, a few public purse incentives, and we would gladly invest. And don't forget, we are talking about heli, high energy, low emission coal. 
I thought it unfair to mention to Sarah there, there could be a no emission alternative, but HELI, we would have thought the fossils could have thought up a less appropriate acronym. And Malcolm's resolute, stalwart, unswerving leadership this week will have further cheered her up no end. A strong leader and one of the fossils who determine our fossil energy, we can't afford to save the planet policy, Craig Killy the planet, said Malcolm showed leadership strength by capitulating 100% and abandoning the latest watered down or fossiled up version of an energy policy, energy policy number 183. And Tiny, as an aside, given Tiny promised he would not be a wrecker, the mind boggles at what he might have got up to if he was. And Tiny, who helped force Malcolm to abandon watered-down policy 183, then attacked Malcolm for abandoning watered-down policy 183. Uh, Yes, you've always said you believed in climate change and the need to address it, Malcolm. And I do. But I believe even more in being big supremo. Not for myself, of course, but so I can give the country the strong, resolute, unflinching leadership it needs. Behind him in this giant fossils tailings dam, we caught the last sight of the negative sinking into the depths. And with it, sharing the glug, 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 we also caught the last sight of that other holy grail, tax cuts for the filthy rich. We have to admire the extreme quality in the caring business class party when their choice for alternate leader is Constable Peter Duffer. Imagine! But then the Socialist Party has got little Billy Short and ambition, and the Hayseed and Sheepshit Party had Barnacle, so the depth of quality obviously runs deep across the parliamentary board. On which, a week also, of course, where we've all been absorbed, unable to put down True Blue Aussie's latest literary tome, its author destined for Nobel Literature Honours, yes, Barnacle's new book, well, his only book, and it's odds on it'll be his last book. I recall arch-conservative, still New South Wales Minister of State, Prude Goward, and her caring business class party, a parachick husband, can't think of his name, but they wrote a 700-page biography of the little bald-headed bloke who used to be Big Supremo back in those dark ages. Biography? No, well, no, pure hagiography, which I raised because it sold about 20 copies nationwide, 20 masochists. But I reckon in the bestseller department, Barnacle's contribution to literature will give it a run for its money. Barnacle did admit he'd chased women for years. Well, he'd have to. He'd have to chase them because they'd be running away. And while I'm a little bald-headed bloke who used to be, on that disturbing thought that Constable Duffer may challenge Malcolm for Big Supremo, perhaps the caring business class and hayseed and sheepshit party's lot, since the demise of a little bald-headed bloke, just enjoy watching their Big Supremo lose his own seat. And they've all been hymns, of course. Poor Julie Bashup, the workers, remains permanent token deputy, but never rates a mention when they come to appoint their next leader after their next knife-throwing act. And on a run for its money, heard an item on this station last week with former Socialist Party big economic guru Wayne Swansong, as he's Swansong, sounding like some Marxist lecturer, Trubler was his radical guru. And I thought, why didn't he do all that when he had the chance? And he told us the caring business class party lot were the party that failed workers. And again, I thought, I reckon the Socialist Party would give them a run for their money. 
on a sombre note and finally judges keep attacking and finding the uh, evil construction union the competition watchdog this week launched cartel charges against the union while yet another construction worker a 35 year old father of two was killed on Thursday will never go home from work Next day's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review ran big, big story of the union being charged, no mention of a worker dying, while the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, six pass, bottom of page, under big, picky story that a clothes horse fashion salesperson was leaving the great department store, presumably because she's over 30 and past it. Worker, same age, will never get any older. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr. Kevin Healy. And as I tell you most Tuesday afternoons, the time for Mr. Kevin Healy is Wednesday morning at nine for his program City Limits, which um, goes right through till ten o'clock with a cup of tea. Dr. Joseph Gerson is the American Friends Service Committee Disarmament Coordinator as Director of the Programs in New England and as Director of the Peace and Economic Security Program, he has worked for the Friends since 1976. He plays a leading role in building collaboration amongst US, Asian and European peace and nuclear weapons abolition movements. His program work focuses on challenging and overcoming US global hegemony, including its preparations for and threats to initiate nuclear war and its military domination of the Asia-Pacific and the Middle East. He's in Australia to meet with peace and justice activists and to reinforce the dangers emanating from our close alliance with the US and the need for an independent Australia. And he came into the studios here at 3CR last week. Joseph, can I take you back 40 years when you first began working with the Friends, a Quaker organisation. What drew you to that organisation and what did you envision you could achieve with them? Well, I came on as a, as a Middle East specialist. Uh, I had lived in Europe after the Vietnam War. I had uh, delved quite deeply into the politics and history of the Middle East and had uh, travelled in the region. I had actually arrived in Beirut 15 minutes before the uh, Civil War started, uh, and the American Friends Service Committee had published a, a study called Search for Peace in the Middle East, which looked at the historic claims of both Israelis and Palestinians to the land, basically said that each had, had, had claims, called for self-determination uh, for each people, for mutual recognition, and for, for peace. And they were looking for people who could do education and organizing around those issues. So that's what I came to do. And then life happened, and there were other opportunities and other work along the way. Which turned out to be? Oh, boy. Uh, well, 1979, we had the Iran crisis, which was quite intense. Uh, and also in 1979, as the nuclear arms race was ratcheting up, uh, I had discussions about whether to back a, a new idea that had come out uh, for a nuclear weapons freeze. I got involved with my colleagues in helping to launch that movement in the United States. Uh, and then sort of a major major change in my life came in 1983 uh, when Senator Kennedy made the mistake of trying to turn Boston Harbor into a nuclear weapons base. And with uh, friends, I led the opposition to that, and we actually beat Senator Kennedy. 
and the establishment and saved the city of Boston from the uh, danger of nuclear weapons accidents and uh, did our small part in reducing the uh, uh, escalation uh, of confrontation with the Soviet Union. Unexpectedly, that led me to Japan, you know, quite deep into uh, both uh, the experience of the A-bomb survivors, deep collaboration with the Japanese peace movement, which has now gone on for more than 30 years. Uh, so I've, I've, I've kept busy. I also, since 9-11, been working closely with partners in Europe, partners in Korea. I, I keep busy. <laughs> Can you talk about Ibakusha? So the Hibakusha are the uh, witness survivors of the uh, atomic bombings in, in 1945. You know, these were people who survived uh, nuclear hell. Just for the sake of listeners who may not be familiar with what even a small atomic bomb does, in the first second, a, a radioactive wave poisoned everybody within a two-mile radius, followed by a blast wave that destroyed almost everything within that two-mile radius. And that was followed by a heat wave, which led to fires, and then there was what's called black rain from everything that was, was drawn up into, into the air, uh, radioactive. Uh, so you had within the, the first year 140,000 dead from Hiroshima, 70,000 dead in Nagasaki. Uh, people with you know, just devastating uh, wounds, dying of cancers and, and the rest, uh, with the city destroyed and, and enormous poverty. So what you have are people who have survived with these you know, really very Powerful on the one hand, uh, uh, still having lingering injuries, wounds, and deep psychological pain from what they witnessed, which was really nuclear hell. Uh, and a number of them have become politically active. They are very clear that human beings and nuclear weapons cannot coexist. They have worked really to save humanity from itself. And I've had the privilege of working with a number of these, a number of these people, and some of them are, are, are friends. And uh, I've done my best to be, act in solidarity with them, give them platforms, try to encourage their work and support their work, again, to save humanity from itself. And there is a, a vibrant and growing peace movement in Japan, and there has been over those years. Yes. You know, Japan is, is the, uh, probably the one country, maybe England as well, where you have a social movement for nuclear disarmament. I mean, it's just woven deeply into uh, the cultural fabric because of the A-bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and then the U.S. nuclear tests at, uh, in the Marshall Islands, which also irradiated Japanese fishermen and part of their, their food supply. So I've just come from the World Conference Against Atomic and Hydrogen Bombs held on the anniversaries of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, A-bombings, we were about uh, 9,000 people, maybe about 100 people from 20 different countries, kind of sharing information analysis, uh, developing some plans for future collaboration. A movement there, its uh, primary focus right now, uh, has been for a long time, is you know, around the, the abolition of nuclear weapons. But they're supporting a thing called the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, uh, negotiated at the UN just about a year ago. And as part of their efforts for this, they are collecting petitions. And it's not the way we in the West often do with uh, see what, what numbers you can gather over the web. These are people who go out onto street corners or into shopping malls on a regular basis, often on the 6th and 9th of a month. But their goal is actually to get hundreds of millions of petition signatures. At the moment, I think they have something on the order of about 5 million petition signatures. And as we did in 2010 and 2015, uh, these will be presented to the United Nations 
at the time of the uh, Nuclear Proliferation Treaty Review Conference in 2020. So there's a lot happening at the grassroots level. The Hibakusha are getting older. It's getting more difficult for them to um, travel, to speak. And you now have uh, organizations of second and third generation uh, Hibakusha who uh, have faced genetic damage because of the A-bombings, you know, have the fear of cancer and real concern about what they're going to pass on to their children uh, as a consequence of the genetic damage from the atomic bombings. That does happen? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I wish I could say otherwise. It's not limited, you know, to Japan. You know, you had similar situations in the Marshall Islands and other countries where, you know, where there's been nuclear weapons testing. Yes, well, we had it here in Australia, and then That's you've right. got to think of the French. They did it in Algeria, and then you've got the Russians. They did it in mm-hmm. lands n- near mm-hmm. Russia. Right, even in the United States. Yes, so Nevada. And just to say, just in terms of the courage and the, the role of, um, uh, of people who have suffered from, from nuclear weapons testing, the, also the uranium mining, you had, beginning in, in what, 2016, a series of international conferences organized by governments called the Humanitarian Consequences Conferences. And it was these conferences that actually led to the negotiation of the, of the, of the, of the ban treaty. I'm remembering particularly a conference in uh, Vienna, uh, which brought together about 158 governments and many of us from uh, non-governmental organizations. And it began with testimonies from uh, nuclear weapons victims, including an indigenous man uh, from here, maybe a woman, from here in Australia, testifying about the impacts of the uranium mining on the Aboriginal people here. And it's mainly been Aboriginal people, hasn't it, Indigenous people who have suffered the most with these tests? They've certainly suffered a lot. and This is because, in large measure, because the uranium is found on, on, on their lands or lands that they've been confined to, as is the case in the United States. And, you know, there's just a long, long tradition of the uh, exploitation and abuse of uh, indigenous people. At the same time, in the United States and other countries as well, uh, you have what we call uh, atomic veterans. Some listeners will have seen the film footage of uh, uh, U.S. forces in trenches, uh, artillery launched nuclear weapon explosion, uh, and then the soldiers are marched into the explosion. The purpose of the exercise apparently was to see how U.S. forces could operate in a nuclear war zone but these men were all ex- exposed to radiation. Uh, similarly, people who had to basically scrub the ships uh, that were used in the testing in the Pacific, many of them uh, suffered from uh, the cancers that resulted. Then you have um, downwinders, both from the atmospheric tests, you know, where the radiation blew over my country, states, not just communities. Uh, and even when they did the uh, underground testing, there was venting. And so you have many, many people, certainly in the American West, who have died as a consequence of of this nuclear weapons testing. We don't hear a lot here about what happened in the U.S. Can you talk about that? Well, at at this point, they no longer need to do the physical testing. They have the computers developed so they can do simulated tests with computers. Uh, They do do what they call subcritical tests, which are not explosions of uh, atomic explosions, but testing the components. So this goes forward in, in, among most of the uh, nuclear weapon states. It's countries like Korea where they're still developing nuclear weapons, where they, they actually have done the test more, more recently. How have the American Indians been compensated for what's been done to them? <laughs> oh, they haven't. When was the last time you were on Mars? By and large, they haven't been compensated at all. 
you know, they're very marginalized in U.S. society. They don't have the kind of political power to exert leverage. We do have a, um, a national network, uh, Alliance for Nuclear Accountability, uh, which brings together people, including Native Americans, uh, who live near nuclear weapons-related sites. You know, they've been pressing to close some of these down and to, uh, in some cases, get some, some small degree of, of uh, compensation. What's happening in Europe? You've got UK, you've got France, mm-hmm. nuclear, and then to yeah, the, yeah. the east you've got Russia. What moves are you, are you taking to bring those people together to try and pressure their governments? Well, I actually work fairly closely with the nuclear disarmament movement in, in Europe. It's, it's taking on several directions. In Britain, the you know, campaign for nuclear disarmament has been launching a really major campaign for a number of years. The government aims to replace it's Trident submarines and to get new uh, nuclear-armed missiles to go with them. had a, a major movement a- against this uh, where they focused principally on uh, what until recently were cuts to the National Health Service and other uh, essential human needs in order to pay for this. You know, the head of the Labor Party there, Jeremy Corbyn, has long been a leading figure in the campaign for nuclear disarmament. He has committed that if he comes to power he will sign the uh, Nuclear Prohibition Treaty uh, and then work to change Labor Party policy uh, so that they can ratify it and be the first nuclear weapon state to do that. Uh, he has said that he would not push the nuclear button. Clearly, he's the leading threat to nuclear weapons in Europe right now. You have, across Europe, in a number of countries, uh, efforts to press their governments to sign and ratify the uh, Nuclear Prohibition Treaty. It's an uphill struggle. Closest they've come is in the Netherlands, uh, where apparently a majority in their parliament favor it, uh, but the government itself, the ministers, refuse to to endorse it. I I was at a meeting in July in Brussels, and there the um, focus of a – basically they brought together representatives from each of the countries that hosts so-called U.S. nuclear weapons. There are five of them. They were – developing strategy to oppose the deployment of new U.S. nuclear weapons to Europe in 2020 and 2021. But then there's the downside, too, which maybe you were alluding to. Uh, so, you know, you have the French nuclear weapon, and, and uh, uh, they're in no rush to give it up. Uh, there's discussion in conservative German circles, both in some think tanks and the media, about the possibility of developing a German bomb maybe in association with the, the French. And there were representatives at this meeting from the Turkish Labor Party uh, saying Erdogan wants a nuclear weapon too. So you know, we, we look at the dangers of, of proliferation as well as the opportunities of trying to contain it. Do you concentrate at all on Israel? Uh, yeah, I've concentrated to a degree on it. Clearly Israel has a, a, a nuclear arsenal. I mean, way back when, Venunu. Uh, who was the uh, technician who revealed the existence of the nuclear arsenal with, with photographs. I actually worked with, with someone really close to him in the early periods of his imprisonment and done, you know, taken some small steps in, in solidarity with him. I mean, one of the things that we try to educate around in the United States is that most listeners won't be familiar with the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty which is really one of the three most important treaties of the 20th century. Uh, it, has, it stands on three pillars, that the non-nuclear weapons states will not get nuclear weapons. In exchange, they have the right to generate nuclear power, which is a f- major flaw in the treaty. 
and the nuclear nuclear powers have committed in Article 6 to good faith negotiations for the complete elimination of their arsenals. They've steadfastly resisted uh, fulfilling this. Every five years you have a review conference, which is when the uh, nuclear powers, all the countries can hold or attempt to hold one another accountable to their treaty commitments. And in 1995, uh, the Global South extracted a commitment, a uh, legal binding commitment, to convene a, a conference toward the development of Middle East nuclear weapons free zone. Obviously, this would uh, include Israel. If you want to think about how to keep uh, Iran or Saudi Arabia from having nuclear weapons, it's the ideal direction. Uh, but what's happening consistently is that the United States, which is supposed to be a co-convener of this uh, conference, uh, has refused to do so. Uh, and in 2015, uh, they almost had a, a positive report coming out of the BT Review Conference, uh, but the very, very last minute, the United States refused to sign on because it wouldn't commit to to holding this conference for Middle East nuclear weapons free zone. Largely, you know, a, a case of the tail wagging the dog, uh, with uh, Obama responding to Israel's demands. Who's wagging whose tail, in your opinion? It works both ways, I think. You know, clearly Netanyahu in Israel was pressing very hard uh, for the United States to go to war with, with Iran in the latter stages of the Obama administration. And uh, certainly today, Obama resisted that. So I don't think we can quite say they're wagging the tail. Uh, but in a number of, number of ways, uh, just given uh, some of the uh, allocations in where, you know, where uh, I'm Jewish, uh, but where Jews are concentrated, and as a result, uh, because many of them will back Israel, regardless of what it does, the politicians are wary of being critical. There's a lot of pressure on them, the politicians. Uh, yeah, there is. I mean, at the same time, say, you know, we, we, we are happy when people like Bernie Sanders, who's also Jewish, uh, steps out and is critical of Israel's policy. So, and one of the things that's happened, uh, you know, really over the last 40 years, is there has been a division in the American Jewish community. Uh, so it's increasingly split 50-50 between those who are uh, totally uncritical supporters of Israel and those who are increasingly opposed to the settlements uh, and to uh, Israel's oppression of Palestinians, which you know they see as, rightly, I think, as uh, a self-destructive act on the part of Israel because you, you can't do this uh, in, in, indefinitely. But you also, you know, you're kind of looking at the, the, the wagging the, do- the tail, and clearly, you know, the United States has long used Israel as a ally, as a base, as a source of uh, high technology. Uh, so it's, it's a, there's a kind of mutuality there in the relationship. And also gave Israel the technology to build their bombs, which they say they haven't got, or they, they deny whether they have mm-hmm. or they haven't. They basically got the bomb with the help of France. Okay. Yeah, in 1956, uh, when France and Britain wanted to overthrow the Nasser government, scenario they developed uh, was that Israel would invade Egypt uh, and then the British and French forces would come in. And that's what began to happen, but the United States was not happy under Eisenhower uh, about France and, and Britain challenging U.S. hegemony in the region. Eisenhower basically put heavy sanctions on the British and French, uh, and as a result, they had to, everybody had to withdraw. The Israelis were left holding the bag, led by Perez, it worked closely with the French, who felt the sense of guilt. You know, this is only 10 years after the uh, end of the uh, Second World War and, and the, the Holocaust in Europe. 
Uh, and so it was with French help and assistance uh, that the Israelis built their built, built their their bomb. Can you talk a bit more about Russia? It's encircled mm-hmm. now by client states of the U.S. They must feel very threatened. Yeah, with Russia, you know, I think things are are, are complicated. I think the when we look at the increased tensions between the United States and, and Russia. Uh, I think we have to look uh, at the expansion of NATO as the, the principal source of this. I absolutely have no love for Putin and his government. We have a new czar in Moscow. But, uh, you know, deep within Russian perceptions or on the one hand, or, you know, just the worldview, the history of Napoleon's invasion from the West, which was a disaster, uh, World War I, uh, and then Hitler's invasion, you know, which, which led to the deaths of more than 20 million uh, Russians. So when Western forces uh, are conducting military exercises and are deployed along the Russians' borders, uh, this inevitably makes them quite nervous. And, you know, I think they've been taking a number of, of steps in response, including interfering in the U.S. elections. So it's not exactly sweet. Uh, at the same time, there's another force going on that I think needs to be acknowledged, uh, which is Russians' Uh, certainly people like Putin who've come through the, the KGB have an understanding uh, and identity of Russia as a great power, one that has spheres of influence into uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, and it's, it's interesting. I, I recently read a book on the, uh, on the Crimean War. What you learn is that a, a pillar of the ideology that the legitimated the czars uh, was their role in, in defending Christianity and even believing that they had responsibility for the good care of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. You know, their view was that their sphere went that far. Uh, so you you do have in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, the failures of the Yeltsin government pushed to kind of re, uh, reestablish both Russia as a, as a great power and its influence in Eastern Europe and in uh, portions of the Middle East. So you have, you have tensions there that, you know, tensions are always inevitable. And the question is, you know, how do you deal with it? Well, obviously, one way you deal with it is you don't bring Ukraine and Georgia into NATO, which those are absolute tipping points. Uh, And as we had at the uh, end of the Cold War, uh, you explore common security diplomacy, uh, ways in which agreements can be made that will uh, reassure competing sides that they are not ultimately threatened by the other. And, of course, increasing sanctions doesn't help either. Uh, no, the sanctions have not have, have not resulted in what one hopes. At the same time, I mean, look, the United States has a long history of interfering in other countries' elections, so anything that's said by someone in the United States needs to be said with a great deal of humility. Uh, at the same time, you know, one has to defend what, insti- you know, what democratic institutions you, you have in a country, and part of this is not only charging what happens in other countries. I read the other day that an 11-year-old hacker managed to hack into Florida's election system. I think Trump has been glad for his Russian assistance. Uh, I think the more we, we, we learn what's coming out of the investigations uh, are that uh, he's basically, among other things, he's been a major money launderer. And much of his wealth grows out of money by ill-gotten gains of Russian oligarchs and from the Russian mafia. Just as uh, there's an organization here for, you know, for independent, uh, peaceful Australia, uh, we need to have an independent and peaceful United States. I'm just wondering what percentage of the population actually know those sort of things that you've just said. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting. What, what you can read in the studies are uh, not many people are following those details. 
Uh, certainly readers of the New York Times know this and, and some other papers. Most people in the United States, you know, they get up, they go to work, they try to find a little bit of time for their families and entertainment and, and don't, don't focus on, on this. The major public issues, I mean, you know, with, with Trump, the best determinant of, of who supports Trump is are they a racist? And that's, that's what drives it. And the, you know, we have a number of, of really fundamental struggles going on at this point because Trump is really attempting to undermine in, in the most serious way one can imagine democratic values and institutions in the United States and aided in this by, by Fox uh, television, by, by Murdoch, who apparently has considerable influence here in, in Australia as well. But one of the central areas of the struggle you know, is, is around immigrant rights. You know, there's, there is a quite a high degree of consciousness there, both sides in a way. But in response to the separation of families, uh, the imprisonment of children, you know, we had demonstrations in 750 communities across the United States. I mean, that, that crossed a line that uh, most civilized people just absolutely can't tolerate. There are increasingly parallels in, in the United States to what took place in Germany in the early 30s, both in terms of you know, midnight roundups, people being deported, families uh, split up, assaults on basic democratic institutions, the right to vote, and the assault on truth. We're engaged in a, in a really quite deep struggle over over what, what this country is going to become. What are your thoughts on the emerging China around the world? At one level, what we look at is what's called the Thucydides trap, which you know, Thucydides was a Greek historian who wrote about the inevitable tensions between Athens and Sparta as one one city-state was rising and the other was declining. You know, in international relations over the centuries, when you have a rising power and a declining power, uh, you inevitably have tensions, and only in a few cases has armed conflict been, been avoided. I mean, it's, it's interesting, looking at the 20th century, Joseph Nye, who's not someone I particularly love, commented that twice in the 20th century, uh, the United States, the, the, power, the, the, the dominant powers, the United States and Britain, failed to integrate the rising powers, Germany and Japan, and the result you know, were the catastrophic wars. So some people are, are sobered by that history and are hoping to find ways to, to avoid uh, such an outcome with, with China. You know, I'll tell a story. Some years ago, I did a, organized a conference uh, in association with a, a Chinese uh, organization. Uh, we held it, I think, at American University in Washington. Uh, I wanted to have a workshop on the South China Sea. Uh, my Chinese partners did not. I insisted. Uh, so we had a really quite senior figure from China in the uh, workshop, along with uh, senior scholars from Vietnam and the Philippines who have seas and territories uh, that, that uh, uh, they claim and that China also claims. Uh, and the large part of the audience were Vietnamese students. Uh, it was a very intense workshop. And the Vietnamese students rode the Chinese figure very, very hard. And then he finally had had enough. And he says, look, in the coming years, your countries are going to be so dependent on us economically, you won't have a choice. And so I think we see some of this happening in Asia and, and the Pacific. The other piece that's happening, I mean, you know, China understands itself as a great power. It, it was the dominant nation uh, in recorded civilization, right, over the last 5,000 years. And so there's a expectation uh, by many Chinese you know, to assume the rightful rightful place in, in the world. Uh, so as, as they, as some of them are looking at the world, uh, their land borders are really quite secure. 
uh, but as they look out at the at, at, at the world at geography, uh, they're reminded that the, the British and the Americans and the Japanese all came in from the sea, and so it's basically creating something like uh, what the United States has with the Caribbean Sea and with the Monroe Doctrine. Uh, they're seeking to do, they're seeking to exercise great power uh, control. And, you know, I'm encouraged to read about the negotiations, you know, for a basically a compact between the ASEAN nations and, and China over the rules of the road in the South China Sea. But there's going to be inevitable tensions there, uh, especially as you have China's, you know, rising power, the construction of what are really, really military bases on what were once rocks. Uh, and the United States, uh, no, no power cedes power without some form of a struggle. So it's the, the tensions are real. Finally, Joseph, you've been working on these issues for many, many decades. Are you an optimist or a pessimist? Half full or half empty? You know, some places it's half full, some places it's half empty. I mean, the the way I would say it, you know, on the one hand, uh, being Jewish and born in 46, there's a part of me that looks out of the world from Auschwitz and the question of what the Germans and others should have done. And, and I actually had the privilege in the mid-70s of working with people who have been involved in the resistance to, to Nazi occupation. So I take, I take uh, power and, uh, uh, and spirit from that. When I was quite young, my father, whose first language was French, uh, immigrant family, told my sister and myself that we we're going to be hosting a French family in our home on a Sunday afternoon. And he said that the um, father in the family had fought in the Maquis, against the Nazis. There was something in the tone of my father's voice uh, that communicated that the highest calling for a person is to work for justice and, and as a consequence I'd add for peace. And so this is a, that, the, the, the model of the civil rights movement, the fact that we have prevailed from time to time. Uh, you, know, you, you, you can't always know that you're going to win, but if you don't struggle, you don't win. So dare to struggle, dare to win. Thank you. Where have we heard that before? Dare to struggle, dare to win. This time for America, that was Dr. Joseph Gerson, who's an um, anti-nuclear activist, working for nuclear disarmament and peace throughout the world. And he was here in Melbourne last week. You are listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR and the time now is 4.42. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogra, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. Blacklisted Australian human rights activist Gil Bohinger was deported from the Philippines last week, following almost a week held at Manila Airport. Human rights activist here in Australia, Peter Murphy, met with the Australian professor last night, and I asked Peter first how he was faring after his ordeal. He was in good shape, uh, Jan. He was a bit uh, droll about uh, his experience, but thankfully he was relaxed and uh, seemed in good shape for you know, what he'd gone through. 
um, which would have been pretty stressful. Sort of relieved that the flight back happened without any health incidents, so that's that's good. But he was adamant that uh, you know they'd really done something wrong. Uh, the China Southern Airlines and the Philippines government in uh, sending him back without a proper health assessment. What did he tell you about the interrogation that he must have um, endured at some stage? It was more a case of him interrogating them. They were very um, minimal in uh, the information they gave him, minimal in the information they gave his lawyers about why he was detained. They had a sort of uh, phrase, you know, that it wasn't them who was uh, detaining Gil, it was China Southern Airlines. So that was a bit of a myth that they they just hid behind. They held to that position all the way through. It was a very strange experience. He overall thought that uh, the Philippines government had kicked an own goal by locking him at the uh, airport in Manila. And uh, he said, well, they might have got away with it if they had managed to put him on the plane, you know, within eight hours or so. But as soon as uh, local media realised that this was going on, they they came to the airport and interviewed him repeatedly. And so as each day passed, the story got bigger. It was very embarrassing, I think, for Filipino people to see their government doing this to him. That's that's the the way it came across in the media in, in Manila also. It's good and bad news, really. He's home safe, but his wife is still in the Philippines and she can't get here. That's right. It's uh, now, I think, uh, really important that the spouse visa application be expedited from the Australian end. Gil's hoping that in the actual direct interaction he had with the consular staff in uh, from the Australian Embassy in Manila will help that because one of the issues always with these visas is the question of is the relationship genuine and uh, consular uh, staff were able to witness the strong relationship between uh, Evelyn and uh, Gil uh, uh, over this week <laughs> very stressful situations where you know Evelyn uh, had to travel at an, you know, an inordinate trip really in uh, getting to Manila herself and then to be intermittent you know alternatively allowed in to see Gil and then blocked from seeing him. It was, it was really outrageous. And I, I think uh, the consular people saw all of this and the effect it had on both of them. I'm hoping that given what he's been through and what Evelyn's been through, that she would be able to come to Australia pretty soon. But his experience over the last week or so doesn't get bode well for the people of the Philippines when yet another human rights defender has been kicked out of the country. Yeah, that's, the, that's the message that everybody's taking from this experience uh, in abroad. It's uh, a sort of implacable attitude from the government, it seems. And uh, the uh, meaning of it is, of course, if this can be done to a foreigner, then you know the locals have got very little chance of any, any sort of protection. I think that is the message. There's obviously a reaction to that. So people's attitude to... President Duterte and his administration will polarise or harden one way or the other. Because this was such a personal thing, people could see you know, a very elderly person being really ridiculously victimised and they just felt a sort of national embarrassment. And, and therefore, people firmed up their attitude that Duterte is a completely unacceptable 
president and this administration has to change. And I guess on the other hand, there's a, there's a smaller group, which is more fanatically pro-Duterte, who probably just uh, celebrated this case like many other cases uh, of outrage in the Philippines. This um, decision to deport Gill doesn't bode well for Sister Patricia Fox, or is it a different situation altogether? I don't think it's that different, except that Sister Fox has been living in the Philippines since 1991. Gill has been an intermittent visitor, also staying for months at a time, but uh, nothing like her, you know, absolutely uh, demonstrated commitment to the Filipino people. You know, her case is, is sort of, I think, more significant. Um, and uh, in terms of what Gill's experience means, yes, I do think it means that... Uh, the Bureau of Immigration and behind them the uh, President are determined to deport Sister Fox. There is a legal battle being fought now and we'll, we'll wait and see just what happens with that appeal. But, you know, as Gil said to me last night, you know, the lawyers in the Philippines say rather wryly, you know, they say the law itself is an option here. It's optional for the government to abide by the law. And it's optional for the courts to uphold the law. So in this case, I think, you know, it's a long shot that the court will take the option of upholding the law because I think there's nothing nothing that Sister Fox has done which would justify her deportation, of course. Well, where does that leave democracy in the Philippines? I think it's a battlefield now. Long-term uh, participants in this, you know, like Gil and myself and others from Australia never really believe it's a democracy. It's a kind of battlefield with armed groups roaming around on it. And the armed groups are, are largely you know, really powerful families. They have their private armies or they are able to use the, the state forces. There is resistance and there are armed resistance groups, um, but they're smaller. Yeah, so democracy is, is really just a highly manipulated concept in the Philippines. The elections are... Uh, you know, notoriously corrupted and uh, vote buying and uh, threats and so on, intimidation are pervasive. Cheating is, is so obvious, even in, the, in this last election, there's, there's clearly um, evidence of massive cheating uh, against Duterte, but his, his landslide uh, vote was uh, quite sufficient to overwhelm the cheating. But looking at the Bongbong Marcos vote and uh, the Lenny Robredo vote, you can see that there's something quite big happened there, but it wasn't enough to deal with Duterte himself. The latest on, the, on this whole front is uh, that um, Duterte started to say he's not that uh, good in his own health. He may not last his whole term. He would prefer that Bong Bong Marcos was uh, able to win his appeal against the election declaration that he would be instated as the vice president and then become the president. So you can see a long arc in history happening here from 1986 to 2018 and that uh, a strategy to get the Marcoses back in the saddle could be really coming to fruition. Duterte represents uh, a sort of uh, Trojan horse for the Marcos family, in fact. Not good, is it? It's sensationally bad. It's a huge... You know, if this does come to pass... It would be, um, you know, like a, a massive embarrassment to all of those governments, including the Australian government, which have gone along with uh, all of this lawlessness and the impunity looking the other way for all these decades. 
not only looking the other way, we've got we've had um, the army in there, haven't we, or the air force in Mindanao? We've now got military on the ground, but I think we've had them there since about 2004, and uh, there's more of them now. Still, it's still considered a small contingent, but it's uh, it's one of those commitments that uh, can only you know enlarge. Uh, given the circumstances there, and I think it's something the Australian people are just not aware of. It's it's like the very beginnings of the Vietnam commitment back in 1961. I said the Australian governments uh, have looked the other way, but at the same time they've always been providing military assistance to whichever administration was in power in the Philippines from the Marcos time to now. I've seen the blacklist on which uh, Gill's name was placed and uh, there are four Australians on that list and there are only 15 names on it. I think the list, you know, emerged out of a conference that took place in the Philippines in, in 2015. But, you know, just one bit of paper with some names on it. It's hard to understand how it fits into a, a genuine strategy to, you know, take care of national security. It's sort of a list of people that they don't like, I guess. But it's, t- it's got a title on it saying blacklist. Out of 15 names, four were Australians. So that, I think, should say something to us about uh, the importance of support from Australian citizens and uh, civilian uh, organisations, whether they're trade unions or churches, for our counterparts in the Philippines, that it is important and that the government of the Philippines wants to crack down on it. I I think that that's something to note. Thank you so much, Peter. Okay. Thank you, Jan. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do. And everything can change. I was going to say that was Peter Murphy, human rights activist from Sydney. But when you push two buttons at the same time, things happen. This is 3CR. It's um, seven minutes to five o'clock and this is Tuesday home time. And I'll be here until six o'clock. Jan Bartlett. In a few moments we'll be hearing from Bevan Ramsing who was one of the people who was instrumental in getting 3CR up and going in the early 70s. Part two of um, Nick McClellan's talk on Nauru and finally the history of Korea. But let's hear from Bevan first. Usually Shirley Winton presents the IPAN Independent Peaceful Australian Network segment on Tuesday home time on a regular basis. Today, though, we have a special guest, Bevan Ramsden. He has a history here at 3CR, so it's actually a blast from the past. Yeah, I suppose it's a blast from the past. It was 1974 when the first ideas were broached for a community radio station in Melbourne. At that time, the Whitlam government was looking at how to diversify the radio airwaves it was slightly in the, in the grasp of a few, handful of commercial stations. They did bring out a report, the McLean report. In reading of that, some of us who had been involved in the anti-war campaign and had known the, the way they restrict your access, any access at all, 
depth of the airwaves on that sort of subject, we thought, gee, this is worth looking at. So based on that Whitlam report, McLean report, it became possible to agitate, that was it, that's what it involved, a lot of agitation and getting together an organisation called the Community Radio Federation, which embodied 50 or 60 organisations, community organisations, and it swelled to 120 uh, within a matter of three or four years. And the station started off at Armadale, actually, in the back of the Community Ada Broads retail outlet. Yes, it goes back a long way, Jan. Yeah, and it's very, it was very interesting how it developed from there. And it's still going, and still going strong. Absolutely. The key issues of the station was its independence, and that must be safeguarded. And we stood out against commercial advertising because they could undermine your ability to be independent if you had to satisfy and the advertisers, you know, and so independence was a key issue and that involved enormous input from volunteers, very few paid staff, uh, listener sponsors or listener supporters giving donations, organisations giving donations. And I'm proud that 3CR is still there after 40 years and going strong, it's self-supporting and it's upholding the independence banner and giving a chance for those who don't have access to the airwaves to make their their position now and, and that includes on the cultural side um, music and artists that way too Thank you I'm very, very, very pleased to be asked to talk today on the station it's wonderful Well let's start with Donald Trump could he be ready to order a strike against Iran? IPAN picked up that or well, we all picked it up um, in the papers that um, some senior officials in the Australian government had released this worrying idea that Trump was, was planning to attack Iran's nuclear facilities. IPAN immediately put out a press release saying this would be a, a very bad thing to do and moreover Australia should in no way assist those attacks. The trouble is that in carrying out military activities the United States depends very often on Pine Gap. It's in the middle of Australia, it's a satellite fire station that uses the satellites in the, up in the atmosphere to peer down and pick up radio signals and visual signals and integrate them into reports which are analysed and the US military uses that it, tactically on the, in the battlefield and in preparing for it. So if the US did attack, Australia would be involved in that, in that way. However, to date, it hasn't attacked. I mean, they've got this sanctions, policy of economic sanctions against Iran, which is generally their prelude to doing something worse. But in our press release, that was IPAN's a former senior diplomat, Richard Gronowski, said for the USA to bomb Iran would be a blatant abuse of international law and a ridiculous overreaction to Iran's nuclear situation. He said Iran doesn't have nuclear weapons. It has agreed to substantially interrupt its civil nuclear program, a program which is legally entitled to pursue. And France, Britain, Germany, China, Russia all agree that Iran has abided by the terms of the joint plan of action. Donald Trump has stepped outside that, the USA has stepped outside that and ignores the fact that uh, allies in Europe are very happy with what Iran's been doing and is creating this um, tense situation. Certainly uh, Australia should not be involved with it. I say the problem at the moment, we don't have that independence because Pine Gap is so integrated in with the US military that they make use of it. It's the spying facilities when they engage in military action. And, of course, another aspect of the close relationship with the US is the fact that we've now got an, yet another base in Australia, and that's in Darwin, and that brings me to the Given the Boot campaign. Well, I'm glad to talk about that, Jan, because what's very close to my heart at the moment. I've actually written a, an article on the forced posture agreement. 
That's the agreement that underpins the US Marines in Darwin, the Force Posture Agreement. Now, that was signed in 2014 between the Australian and USA governments, but President Obama raised it in joint sitting of Parliament in Canberra in 2011, around about November the 11th, actually, important historical date in Australian political history. He said that, uh, yes, that we would be giving us these US Marines in Darwin. All the politicians applauded him. We're going to have foreign troops on our soil. We're not at war. There's no threats to Australia. In fact, the Defence Department in their last white paper, Defence White Paper, said in three times in that paper that they see no military threat to Australia in the foreseeable future. That being so, why have they sent US Marines to Darwin? Why do we have to pay the money to have them stationed there and to train with our troops and to engage in war exercises. Do we know how many there are there now? 1,587 was the figure this year. They have just recently had a joint Australian-American high-level defence meeting called one of the Osmin meetings of the ministers. A statement they put out said they want to increase the numbers to 2,500 next year, next time they come out. 2,500 US Marines up there in Darwin and they're engaging, they actually go on our ships. The ABC reported this, that HMAS Adelaide has been equipped for amphibious landings of troops. And, of course, the US Marines uh, are trained for uh, landing from a naval vessel, invading, capturing and securing territory. That's their role that they're, they're trained for. And HMAS Adelaide is now going to have US Marines on board in the various war exercises they're carrying out this year and this year. Now, what are they practising for, Jan? I mean, amphibious landings, are they talking about the Chinese islands? They're going to go and try and take them back from the Chinese, the ones that's been in dispute? And that would create a real, real kerfuffle. And, of course, Australia's becoming more and more embedded in their plans and actions by allowing this to happen. And we're all well aware of the problems that a large number of soldiers or sailors cause when they are in a foreign country. There's always been some, some uh, instances of that in Darwin. And they're covered up. They don't, don't allow much out of what happens there when there's uh, these attacks on women or then some already. That's the situation in Okinawa and other places where their military bases are, that the social consequences of having them are not very nice, apart from the, the military aspect of having them on your soil. But this campaign that IPAN is running, and we just started this year, is to draw the public's attention to the consequences of having those US Marines in Darwin and the Force Posture Agreement because the agreement actually facilitates the Americans' unimpeded use of our ports, airport runways for their aircraft and the right to store on our soil weapons of war, bombs, uh, spare parts, uh, communications equipment. It's all written into this Force Posture Agreement. It's almost as if they're setting up Australia as a base for them to work from in this area. It's not a question of having US bases in Australia. They're trying to make Australia a base for their military and projecting their power into Southeast Asia and the Pacific and Indian Ocean. Um, and that's a real worry. It draws us potentially into hostile acts that they initiate that we don't want to be involved with. I mean, look at Vietnam, look at North Korea, look at Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan, all been drawn into these crimes against humanity. I consider them the way they invaded, the way they treated and destroyed structure and killed so many million people. We don't be involved in any more of those and this force posture agreement binds us even more closely to US hostile actions in our region. One thing we're doing at Newcastle and Sydney, we have a leaflet with letterboxing, grassroots work. I'd hope that we 
could get it going in Melbourne and maybe some of your listeners would like to be involved. I mean, the start point is to let the public know about what's going on. And so our, 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 our leaflet to a letterboxing, we've put out about 20,000 leaflets in Sydney and Newcastle so far, and we want to get going in Melbourne. It's just to let the public know what's going on to start with. We want to give them a boot. And that's Bevan Ramsden, one of the people who were instrumental in getting 3CR off the air in the early 1970s, and he's now part of IPAN, Independent Peaceful Australia Network, and we'll hear more from Bevan on the program next week. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. 3CR's Radical Radio book is now on sale for just $30. You can get your copy of 3CR's book at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history on sale for just $30. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Next, part two of my interview with researcher and journalist Nick McClellan, looking at the history and present-day Ireland of Nauru. Obviously, on climate policy, Nauru is deeply opposed to Australian policy and has been very vocal during the international global negotiations. A few years ago, for example, Nauru was uh, chair of the Alliance of Small Island States. Nauru's ambassador to the UN, Marlene Moses, was very active as AOSA's chair, bringing together small islands from the Caribbean, the Pacific, the Indian Ocean, to campaign against fossil fuel companies, to campaign against the sort of policies that Australia was campaigning on. So I think it's important not just to simply see that Nauru is told what to do by Canberra. In fact, it's an interesting dance where Nauru has some leverage simply by the the fact that they uh, could try and cause problems for the government around the uh, the very fact that Australia doesn't want to, anyone in Australia to pay attention to what's going on in Nauru. That's a double-edged sword because Nauru is also the current Nauru government under President Baranwanga has, you know, brought in policies to constrain human rights and indeed limit media freedoms. One issue that's uh, currently on the table is around uh, Nauru's policy of restricting visits by journalists from Australia and other countries to Nauru. As a journalist, to apply for a visa to go to Nauru, there's an application fee of uh, US dollars, about 8000 Australian dollars. That's a non-refundable fee. So if you apply for a visa, uh, you have to pay the application fee, and if you don't get the visa, you don't get your money back. So that's a disincentive for people to go there. And indeed, only a few Australian journalists, notably Chris Kenny, uh, Alexander Downer and Malcolm Turnbull's former chief of staff, long-term Liberal Party apparatchik as one of the few journalists who's actually got to Nauru in recent times. Why have they taken that path? Well, I think that they... Uh, this is where Australia and Nauru are on the same page. They know that scrutiny um, about the condition that people are living in would raise more problems. They also might hear what Nauruans think about the situation because 
there's a, an unease about the situation in Nauru because of uh, the way in which, you know, refugees have been integrated into the community. People are no longer held behind, uh, you know, barbed wire fences. They're, they're uh, allowed out and work in the community. Um, and this is a country of only 11,000 people, so to have a 1,000 or so refugees is a, a big number. You know, there are tensions between there. There's also just economic and uh, environmental tensions of hosting so many people in such a small country. Health services have been under incredible stress, um, and Nauru doesn't have the capacity, even though it's funded through Australian, you know, Australian taxpayers paying for uh, private contractors to run the hospital and to provide services to the hospital. They just don't have the specialist capacity that's uh, needed to deal with people in Nauru or people who have been brought as asylum seekers and refugees. So you have many Nauruans travelling to Australia for specialist medical treatment. And this is a real problem that attempts to upgrade the hospital have been part of the package that Australian taxpayers have been paying for. But even so, there are many, many medical conditions that can't be treated on the island. And we have the farcical situation where the Australian government has fought against judicial rulings that asylum seekers and refugees should be brought to Australia for treatment uh, for specialist matters, uh, for abortions and so on, that can't be done in Nauru. Many ordinary Nauruans are a bit you know, concerned that the, the costs of hosting the refugees are borne by the local population through things like higher rents and so on, um, whereas the, the benefits flow to private companies. You know, and there's been a series of companies, Broad Spectrum, IHMS and others who've... Uh, who've done very nicely, Wilson Security and others, as billions of dollars in recent years have been pumped into this uh, offshore warehousing. Very soon there's going to be the, the meeting of the Pacific Islands Forum. What do Pacific leaders think about what's happening in Nauru and PNG and Manus? There's a, a certain silence about it from Pacific leaders. Many, uh, many governments have been reluctant to publicly criticise Nauru and Papua New Guinea for this. Some feel there's a quiet admiration that the Nauruans have managed to screw Australian taxpayers out of so many millions of dollars. P&G certainly did very well. You know, Kevin Rudd signed away a huge amount of money to the Papua New Guinea government, Peter O'Neill government, in terms of rebuilding the Highlands Highway, paying for a university. I mean, our aid program was supposed to be doing primary education in Papua New Guinea, and all of a sudden, thanks to Kevin Rudd signing over bucket of money we're paying for a university in Lay because Peter O'Neill uh, said well are you sure you want these people to stay in Nauru in Manus um, you know so there's a certain leverage and all the conditions about good governance and the proper control of aid and things like that has been thrown to the wind the you know the lack of transparency about this matter is a real shame on the Australian government you know at the end of the downer years they were refusing to publish the last two years of the Howard government, they refused to publish in the annual budget papers how much money was being given to Nauru in foreign aid. It was listed as NFP, not for publication, in 2005-06 and 2006-07. So that lack of transparency has continued under Peter Dutton and successive governments. So there's some, some real, real concerns by Pacific governments about the lack of transparency and about the distortion of priorities you know, Australia can find hundreds of millions of dollars every year at a time that our aid budget is at the lowest level ever as a ratio of our gross national income. At the, at the end of the, the labour years, rather than Gillard, we were aiming for 0.5% of gross national income. 
less than one cent in a dollar to go to international aid, half a cent in a dollar to go to international aid. And we've dropped from that target of 0.5, we're at 0.22 at the moment, I think, heading towards 0.19. Now, even the Brits, who've got Brexit and all sorts of things, are at 0.7, the global target for aid ratios. We're down at 0.2. It's shocking, and the, this government, who keeps saying that they're so paranoid about the Chinese coming and influencing the Pacific, have not backed up that concern with money for international development. And so around the Pacific, there's a lot of concern that Australia is spending hundreds of millions of dollars on Manus and Nauru, and that distorts the aid program at a time that aid's at its lowest level ever in terms of the ratio of gross national income, causing resentment around the region when there are so many demands around issues around health, around education, and particularly responses to climate change. And we've seen this just recently, where Nauru has been looking for a long time to improve its port facilities. You know, uh, Nauru uh, doesn't have easy access, so material being flown in is very expensive, so they need good port access. And they've been looking for infrastructure funding to improve their port for a long time. Um, Australia, historically, hasn't given, and New Zealand haven't given a lot of infrastructure money in recent years. And we've seen China step into that breach through the China Exim Bank through the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and other Chinese initiatives where they're doing big projects around infrastructure around the region. Australia has been looking for an alternative to Chinese money but hasn't got the money in its own coffers. And so the Green Climate Fund, Australian diplomats pushed very hard for the Green Climate Fund to fund Nauru's port infrastructure project. So Nauru has just received in, uh, I think, October last year funding from the Green Climate Fund for port infrastructure. Now, that's not really focusing on climate change issues, although obviously it has some benefits to reduce, you know, flying in stuff, which is greenhouse gas intensive. But, you know, Australia talks big about trying to stop the Chinese, but this government has failed to address this. And we know why. I mean, this government is pandering as we speak to uh, the coal lobby within the coalition and is talking about spending and guaranteeing billions of dollars of infrastructure for new high-intensity, um, high-efficiency, low-emissions uh, coal plants. You know, this so-called free market, you know, liberal capitalist uh, government is about to start subsidising the coal industry using Australian taxpayer dollars. And Pacific Islanders look at this sort of folly where Australia wants to build the Adani coal mine, where Australia is talking about building new coal plants, and they think that what's going on in Nauru and what's going on with climate policy just shows that Australia, despite all the rhetoric, is not really concerned about the well-being and interests of our closest neighbours. Should be a, an interesting forum? Yeah, it's going to be an interesting forum, although I don't think many people will know much about it. One of the features of this year's forum is that the representation by journalists will be very limited. Nauru has said that only 30 journalists total cameramen, photographers, journalists, will be allowed to go. It's certainly true that Nauru is a small place and they're calling on all delegations to be small. You know, when the Americans and Chinese come, they usually come with sort of 30 or 40 people and that's going to be very difficult, just in two hotels in Nauru, both very small. So just the logistics of the place, there's a certain logic to it. But we've seen Nauru ban the ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, from uh, being one of the Australian media representatives. There's only three 
people from Australia, from the Australian media pack, being allowed to come. And the government has formally, Nauru government's formally announced that the ABC won't be one of them. And there's a lot of anger amongst journalists about uh, the Nauru government and indeed the Australian government um, refusing to address this question of media freedom at a time when they want coverage of the, the key regional meeting. You know, the Australian press pack, the New Zealand press pack usually just travel with the Prime Minister, report on what the Australian Prime Minister says. Not a lot of journalists from Australia or New Zealand go as independent journalists to the forum to report what's actually happening and what Pacific Islanders are saying. And that's a real challenge. You know, I think people need to look more widely um, than the Australian media to find out what's happening. Regional wire services like PAC News, with very good Fijian journalists, uh, other Pacific journalists, I have much better coverage of what happens at these regional summits than you'll ever find in the Australian media, which are usually just reproducing um, the press release that they've been fed um, by the uh, the hosts or the uh, Australian government. What do you believe will be the key issues for this one? There's a few big issues looming. One is the development of a new regional security declaration. In 2000, at a time of some crisis in the region with conflict in the Solomon Islands, with the coup in Fiji, leading up to terrorism scares, obviously, with 9-11, growing conflict, armed conflict in the Solomon Islands, the forum leaders adopted the Bikitawa Declaration. Bikitawa is the island in Kiribati where the meeting was held in 2000. And the Bikitawa Declaration created uh, a mechanism for forum countries to intervene when there are social, political indeed economic crises in member countries. You know, there'd not really been a mechanism to allow intervention. And we've seen interventions regionally under Bikitawa, the 2000 Bikitawa Declaration. Ramsey, the regional assistance mission to Solomon Islands, uh, was the the most notable in 2003, where the Australian-led initiative um, sent in military and police forces and also then civilian staff, $2.8 billion intervention over 13, 14 years, uh, which only just finished last year. 7,800 Australian military personnel were involved over that more than a decade uh, in Solomon Islands. The other major Bikitawa intervention was um, in Nauru, surprisingly, called PRAN, Pacific Regional Action on Nauru, where Australia sent in in the mid-2000s, a lot of people to staff the civil service. At one point, Nauru's police commissioner was Australia. The secretary of finance commission was an Australian. Three or four key financial advisors in Treasury and Department of Finance were Australians. Um, the head of the utilities uh, was an Australian. You know, and we had a lot of influence at that time in uh, the local administration. And that's true today, where there's a lot of Australians in key positions, particularly in the finance uh, ministry, um, in the Nauru government. You know, Ramsey and Pran were examples of regional interventions. The paranoia about China has driven calls for a new Bikitawa Plus declaration. So to replace the 2000 Bikitawa declaration with something stronger, Pacific leaders have been pushing for it, the definition of security, however, to be broadened. They want to talk about human security. They want to talk about environmental security. So the new Bikitawa declaration, I think, will include material about the threat of climate change as a security issue, particularly around the oceans and uh, illegal fishing and the need to protect maritime zones, key natural resources for Pacific Islanders. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see this new Bikitawa Plus declaration, which I predict will be signed off by the leaders in uh, in September in Nauru, where they uh, 
um, set out a broader security agenda. And it'll be interesting to see how much it's about hard power and how much about soft power, how much about concerns driven by Pacific agendas around climate and oceans and uh, human security and how much it's about keeping the Chinese out. Um, Because, you know, the Australian government's putting a lot of defence money into the region. They've stepped up defence spending enormously. Um, Our defence cooperation program, which is money uh, given to uh, neighbouring countries over the last three years, um, our defence cooperation program in PNG has gone, I think, from about $26 million a year to over $40, $47 million, something like this, in the current budget. Um, the amount to Pacific Island countries has tripled in the last three years. You know, Australia's got a $2 billion Pacific Maritime Security Program, and the bulk of that is uh, with the production of new Pacific patrol boats, the construction of patrol boats uh, for Pacific Island countries, with a, a training team from the Royal Australian Navy attached to each patrol boat. We've started maritime uh, uh, surveillance, aerial surveillance. Uh, government announced uh, from December last year $10 million plus is being used to hire civilian aircraft for maritime surveillance. Um, there's a big push around uh, policing still within the region with the Australian Federal Police, um, anti-terrorism training with ASIO and other, other intelligence agencies, a whole lot of stuff going on at the moment. Just think where that money could have gone to housing, health, all those issues for those people in the Pacific rather than weapons. And And that's where ordinary Pacific Islanders look to Australia and are looking away. Um, They're looking to what Australian government people talk about, non-traditional partners. And that's where you see not just China but Indonesia and Korea and India and other developing countries, Russia, United Arab Emirates, uh, a whole range of players are active in the region. Don't get too overwhelmed by the China's taking over the region stuff, though. Australia is still the largest military, political, economic trade partner with most Pacific countries. We have the largest aid program in the region still, um, despite the fact that we're at the lowest level ever of generosity in our global aid program, we still are the largest player in the Pacific Islands, far overshadowing each year China and New Zealand. But China's certainly grown in its aid. And uh, the other big battle in Nauru this year will be the whole Taiwan-China issue. Nauru is aligned with Taiwan. Six Pacific Island countries are aligned with Taiwan rather than with Beijing. And so we're going to see all sorts of theatre as the Chinese, who are in dialogue with the forum, and were very big in Samoa last year, providing cars for the Samoan government to drive everyone around. Uh, This year, Taiwan is uh, the affiliate. So we're going to see a lot of jousting over Taiwan-China relations um, with the Nauru government, one of six in the region that supports Taiwan rather than the one-China policy. China has much more influence with larger Pacific Island countries. Papua New Guinea and Fiji particularly are both aligned with with China rather than with um, Taiwan. We're going to see in November... PNG Prime Minister Peter O'Neill and uh, Chinese uh, President Xi Jinping will co-host a China-Pacific summit in the days leading up to the regional APEC meeting. Papua New Guinea is hosting in November APEC, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit. It's a huge, huge undertaking for PNG and it's a huge logistic challenge to actually run such a big global meeting. But China has agreed to co-host a, a summit for its partners in the region. So bad luck Nauru, they're not part of China's uh, uh, economic investment in the region through uh, BRI, the One Bridge, One Road uh, initiative. 
um, and the, the major Chinese investment that's coming into all sorts of sectors through uh, um, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and other Chinese uh, private companies. For the people here in Australia and perhaps in other countries too, what does a meeting mean down to the grassroots level? The Nauru government's hosting the key regional political meeting, the Pacific Islands Forum. It's in the first week of September, and I think it's an opportunity for Australians to step beyond the media cliches and start addressing these broader issues of human rights, to look at questions about not just the rights of the asylum seekers, but the rights of Nauruans, the rights of uh, uh, journalists working in the region about media freedom. This is a problem not just in Nauru, but in other parts of the region where journalists are under threat and the, the rights of journalists. You know, when you have the President of America damning the, the journalists as the enemy of the people, you know, there are some authoritarian leaders in Asia and the Pacific who are willing to take up that call and, uh, and attack the media. And we see it in Australia where uh, Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton, you know, has lambasted uh, the ABC, The Guardian and other media outlets that have reported on the asylum seeker warehousing offshore. Um, and so I think it's a real opportunity to look beyond the question of, you know, just blackguarding the um, uh, Australian and Nauru governments over the uh, asylum seeker policy and looking broader about what it means in terms of uh, much broader agendas on defence and security and, and the obvious question, security for whom? And I think it's a real opportunity to talk about the rights of ordinary people, um, the rights of not just the asylum seekers but also ordinary people across the Pacific who, like us, are struggling with questions about decent jobs and wages, about looking to the future with a decent environment that doesn't involve coal mines, that doesn't involve uh, new uh, Australian government-funded coal plants. Um, those are the sort of broader agendas that I think people need to, to look at. And there's a danger that the Australian media will just use this week as an opportunity to blackguard the now ruins without talking about a broader agenda. I think it's really important that uh, people step up to use this opportunity to focus on that, those sort of questions. And it's thanks once again to researcher and journalist Nick McClellan. The information we receive about life in North Korea mostly emanates from the West, how much of it is true or not true. But nevertheless, should that knowledge be tempered by actions from those outside the country some actions which go back way in history and others to this day. Dr Tim Anderson, Senior Lecturer in Political Economy at Sydney University, is back from his second visit to North Korea and in the following interview we look at that history and its impact on present-day North Korea and the political system in place today. Tim, I believe we could go back a long way in history to have an understanding of present-day North Korea. But can we limit that to the Japanese invasion and occupation of what was then Korea, which began in the early 20th century, generations of occupation? Yes, I think uh, it was around um, a decade into the 20th century that Japan invaded the Korean Peninsula again. Of course, there was no North Korea or South Korea then. And in fact, if you look at Japanese history, the invasions of the Korean Peninsula, largely for resources, because it was um, the south of the peninsula is a big breadbasket, a very fertile agricultural area. The north has a lot of resources, mining resources, and, and had a lot of industry. But really, there have been centuries of Japanese invasions of Korea. And in the 20th century, as you pointed out at the beginning, 
there was that invasion and occupation which lasted for some decades, basically, until the defeat of the Japanese Empire in the Second World War. What did it mean for the people of that area? A terrible colonial occupation which led to the enslavement of literally millions of Koreans, eventually drawn into, well, industrial plans, but also war plans by the Japanese Empire. The sex slavery of hundreds of thousands, I believe it was around 200,000 Korean women to serve the, the Japanese army as its expansion was going on in China and later on throughout East Asia. That's a big legacy which Koreans today don't forget, North and South, basically, and the relationships with Japan have never really been normal ever since, basically. And uh, it's a difficult thing because it's dragged on so long that, as a friend of mine was pointing out, in Japan these days, the younger generation doesn't really understand why this is still dragging on so long. It's something we can relate from our own experience, I suppose, here with Indigenous people, that if matters haven't been resolved, people find it hard to understand why that history matters so much, but on the other hand, it, it never goes away. Just talk about it for a little bit more, the fact that nearly a million people were forced to leave the country and, and work outside the country by Japan? Yes, that's right, and to this day, there's still quite a large Korean population in Japan, largely from the northern parts, and many of them very loyal to North Korea too, living in Japan these days. They haven't really ever been treated as equals within Japanese society, and there's still a fair degree of racism apparently going on towards Koreans in current circumstances. So some of them went back, and really there's, it's very long, complicated history, but that is one of the biggest exiled populations still in Japan. And a deliberate policy to try and eradicate the culture of Korea? Yeah, within Korea and within Japan, yeah, that's true. In fact, in recent times, there's been a, a withdrawal of government support for teaching the Korean language, for example, in, in schools set up for Koreans. So that's um, still a, a very live, aggravating issue. In Korea itself, under occupation? Uh, in, in, in Korea under occupation, yes. Well, it, it was an extension of Japanese policy at that time. So there was, uh, for example, a chart the resistance against that occupation led by Kim Il-sung, the founder of modern North Korea, a really independent Korea, really, from 1925 to 45, or when he was about the age of 13, when he took to the mountains, basically. So there's that, and that war is commemorated in North Korea to this day, what they call a great defensive war against the Japanese um, occupation up until 1945. Of course, after that, there was the American war, the, the war that tried to annex the entire peninsula in the, in the early 1950s. Just go back to 1945, what was happening with the war between the US and the USSR trying to get um, control of that area of the world after the end yeah. of World War II? So in a nutshell, of course, the, the Americans were fighting the Japanese Empire in East Asia. They eventually invaded Japan and occupied Japan. And they hadn't paid much attention to Korea at that time, but the Koreans themselves allied with, um, later on also, with um, some Chinese forces, and in the very late stages, helped by some Soviet forces, were fighting the Japanese on the peninsula. There was a coincidence of forces there where the, the, the USA and the Pacific were about to defeat the Japanese, including the, the dropping of atomic weapons on, on two of the cities. The Soviet Union under Joe Stalin came into the war against Japan very late in the day 
and the Korean insurgents led by Kim Il-sung were ejecting the, the Japanese from their occupied territory on the Korean Peninsula. So it was a very late development that the US unilaterally decided from their own country to do a demarcation of Korea at the 38th parallel to cut for the first time the Korean nation in half in that way and then deal with the decolonization process later on. What happened effectively was that the Soviet forces came in behind the independent forces there and the, the US very rapidly put together an administration largely based on Japanese collaborators in the south. Um, so Kim Il-sung, the leader of, uh, the founder of North Korea, was well known for that long guerrilla war, whereas the people who were put together to form a military regime in the south were people who were not well known, not supported, but backed by the US. So there was that immediate uh, partition of the country in 1945 at the 38th parallel. After three years, Kim Il-sung asked the Soviet Union to withdraw their forces, and they did in 1948. So then you had an occupied South, uh, South Korea occupied by the US Army, and the North Korea, which had asserted its independence even against its ally at that time, the Soviet Union. And there were thousands of provocations over the next two years leading up to what we call the Korean War. Both sides blame each other for starting it, but in the end, effectively, it was a huge and terrible war which destroyed literally millions of lives and ended up with the same result that started with that partition at the 38th parallel. What was the significance of the 38th parallel? It was something arbitrarily decided uh, in terms of the Cold War, the beginnings of the Cold War there, that because the US didn't have the influence in the northern part of the peninsula there, it was some attempt to cut a deal with Joe Stalin, basically, and divide up without regard to the, the, the wish of the Koreans, which has always been to have a unified nation. The Korean history and culture and language is very distinct, very different from Chinese and Japanese and, and Russian, Siberian. So it was really just something that the big powers decided at that, that, that time. And it wasn't a stable situation because it was a, an ad hoc thing while the dismantling of the Japanese Empire was going on, basically, and to avoid a direct confrontation between the Soviet Union and the US at that time. And as you say, the, it's called the Korean War. The people of Korea suffered greatly during that, didn't they? Millions killed, chemical and biological weapons used. It's, a, it's, an, awful, it's an awful war and something with even people as old as me have grown up with. The Korean War started before I was born and it was finished as I was being born, but we got this vague sort of picture. In some respects, it's a very vague picture about all of the great wars of the 20th century, really. People are not very well educated in this country about what the, the roots of them were, the, the big European wars and the, the war in Korea and, and, and the war in Vietnam, for that matter. But, yes, the Koreans say that up to 4 million people were killed. Uh, in the north, I mean, this was a, a war that devastated all of the peninsula, but in the north, over 400,000 bombs were dropped on Pyongyang and the population of Pyongyang was about 400,000 at the time. So there was more than one bomb for every person dropped on. And at the end, when the US realised it wasn't, really getting its way. The Chinese under Mao Zedong came in in support of Korea in, later in the war, and so there was a, there was a great toing and, toing and froing in the, in the course of that war. But you know, the, the museum in Pyongyang sets it out. It was a terrible, awful war where almost every type of weapon was used. 
biological weapons, chemical weapons. They almost used nuclear weapons. But uh, the US at the end had this scorched earth idea that they carried through into Vietnam later on that if they couldn't win this war, they were going to destroy the country. And there were some expressions at the time about it would never be rebuilt in 100 years. Pyongyang, for example, it was rebuilt in a matter of decades. And um, the War Museum, if anyone gets a chance to go to Pyongyang, uh, it's a, a terrible, powerful, probably the most powerful museum I've seen to commemorate that war back in 1950 to 1953. And yet there's no end to that war. It hasn't ended because, you're right, because um, what happened in 1953, and I think it was uh, around July 1953, was that um, there was an armistice, a ceasefire, but not a peace agreement. And although the Korean War was formally under a blue hat under the United Nations auspices because the People's Republic of China wasn't yet in the Security Council, the Soviet Union was absent in protest at that and so there was a, more or less a, a moment in time where the US was able to dominate the Security Council and get the blue hats. When it came to the armistice, I, I visited the, the building where the armistice was signed, it's in North Korea, a US general wearing US uniform came there to talk with the North Korean generals and to sign the armistice admitting that they had achieved none of their military objectives despite the, the terrible carnage of that war. They'd, they'd achieved nothing. They'd ended up back where they started from. And they went into North Korea to admit that fact and sign that armistice, which was short of a peace agreement. So there were no uh, representatives of so-called South Korea at that time. There was no representatives of the United Nations at that time. The, the, real, the stark reality of it was it was the, the Americans against the, the independent part of, of the peninsula there. Now, since that time... In, I think it was uh, 1957, the U.S. breached that armistice. It breached it many times, but in one respect it breached it by introducing nuclear weapons into the peninsula. Nuclear weapons came into Korea about 61 years ago, and there were hundreds of them at, at uh, different times. Um, in the 90s, the U.S. tried to pretend it was withdrawing the nuclear weapons from the peninsula, but as we know, the U.S. has had a long-standing policy of neither confirming nor denying the presence of weapons, so... Um, it's not really credible if they, if they deny in the middle of that policy, which has been fairly consistent in neither confirming or denying the presence of nuclear weapons. So in that context, we have to understand, I think, the reaction of the North Koreans to eventually, almost six decades later on, to create their own nuclear weapons as a deterrent, that they'd been facing nuclear weapons pointed at them at very close range for, for six decades. Who helped... North Korea to rebuild after those long wars? There was a relationship with the Soviet Union and with China which was much more political, let's say, more um, assistance, political assistance than simply commercial doing business for a long time. Of course, that fell apart when the Soviet Union collapsed in the early 90s and there was indeed a great depression in North Korea as there was in Cuba at the same time for the same reasons that a lot of their trade was based around that relationship with the Soviet Union. The relationship with China also was a much warmer one under Mao Zedong you know, until the, the reform period much later on when the Chinese became much more pragmatic about their international relations. Of course the Chinese still, while that relationship has changed substantially in the last few decades, they still have their own interests, let's remember, in relation to Korea because the last thing that the Chinese government wants is for a, another US proxy to be placed on the Korean Peninsula 
as well as South Korea, which is effectively the colonised part of Korea. They don't want the US to encircle them in that sort of way, so that's one self-interest reason why the Chinese are going to maintain at least some level of um, strategic alliance with, with North Korea. Talk a bit more about the US troops still in South Korea and the weapons that they've got and the training that they have there that upsets the North Koreans with very good reason every year or so. The southern part of the Korean Peninsula, and I say that to try and avoid this South Korea-North Korea thing because really it's something of a myth. If you look at the opinion polls in the south, there's consistent massive support for reunification. The Korean people are a single people and the north has always said that in the south when you look at public opinion, it's around about 80% want reunification. So when things happen, as they have this year, the North-South Summit, the Winter Olympics and so on, there's an enormous emotional response from the entire peninsula, including the South, in favour of that. It's rather inconvenient for the US to recognise that because and the, the US media keeps saying, oh, they don't really need to unify, the young people aren't as strongly committed to it and so on and on. It's inconvenient for them because... Their army has occupied the southern part of Korea for over 70 years now. It's a colonisation, it's a, it's a foreign occupation, which Korean people have grown up with for the last, what, three generations, basically, and it consists of tens of thousands of US troops, as I say, all weapons up to and including nuclear weapons, at very close range to a government in the north, which is fiercely dependent its independence for a century, which has been at war for a century. I mean, the whole peninsula has been on formal war footing for more than a century. That's something to understand why both North and South, basically, there are military regimes. I mean, it's, it's silly to talk about democracy and dictatorship in this system, in this situation of a century of war. Both sides are military regimes, basically, on a war footing. And when there's some sort of relief, like with the North-South Summit recently, earlier this year, there must be a tremendous relief as well as a tremendous sense of hope amongst Korean people that um, they do have this shared dream. And, um, you know, we've seen lots of different ways in which that's been done in recent times, the, the unification of Korea, the two systems approach of Hong Kong and China and so on. Uh, people have different views about that. But there are ways of unification happening without the two systems or, or one, one system defeating the other, let's say. There's a lot of preparations at the moment. For example, I was in the north in um, Pyongyang for the second time last month and uh, there'd been some sports exchanges. There's some more cultural and other exchanges going on. They've resurrected plan from 10 years ago, which is to build a road and rail link between the two capitals. And so there's enormous... Enormous expectations are raised in the Korean Peninsula when, when there's a thaw because they've lived for a century on, on this war, war footing. You are listening to Dr Tim Anderson, lecturer in political economy at Sydney University, speaking about his recent visit to North Korea. Can I just ask you a couple of questions that people talk about all the time, especially the United States, that it's a, essentially a Stalinist dynasty. There are gulags there. Thousands of people, are, dissidents are put there. Many die. The people are deprived of many things. How do you answer that? And how do the people of North Korea answer claims like that? I think the people of North Korea are that concerned about what the US say about them. They're living their own lives. Of course, being on a war footing... It's true that both North and South have jailed people for betraying their countries. You know, there's no, no doubt at all that in both 
died. There are people in prison for perceived betrayal of, of their countries. Um, it's a huge industry, uh, the defector industry, which fuels a lot of the stories. Uh, they're paid, I think the BBC reported about four years ago, that they're paid over $800,000, someone who's going to emigrate, let's say, to say that they're a defector from the regime and tell some stories. There's a huge smokescreen of stories about this, exaggerating it and so on. But it's true that in the North it's, it's a military system. They've made a virtue out of necessity, more or less, by a concept called Songon, where they say their whole society is now organised on a military footing, basically. That is to say, not just their army and their security, but their industry too. The industry is run by the army. The South has been very similar in lots of ways. It's occupied by a foreign military for the first few decades of its life. It didn't even have the semblance of civil administration or military dictators in the South. So both sides are under, on a military footing permanently. Like I say, the, some of the, the propaganda has been extreme. The, the, the Western media has constantly been saying, oh, here's a person we said was executed, our turns up at this function or that function. You know, there's a great deal of misinformation, as you see in, in most wars of this sort, basically. Of course, people want to be free from war because they want to be free from those sort of restrictions that come with a fear that some betrayal or infiltration is going to lead to the tremendous destruction that they've been through, not once, but but twice, you know, in, in a century, basically. The long war with Japan, the long war with the, with the US, which the North prevailed in. And, of course, their priority now is to is basically economic development. You mentioned another part of your question. It was a long question about things that people are deprived of. I'm still trying to come to terms with the data that's published outside North Korea because I'm trying to find out what they really base it on. For example, one of the big stories about North Korea, they say, is that people are starving to death and living on dirt or whatever. It's not the appearance of the country at all. Uh, I've travelled many hours in, in the countryside and saw corn and rice and vegetables grown in all the valleys across the, the central part of the country, from the west coast to the east coast. It's hard to see how the UN comes up with figures which vary rather wildly, but between about 20 and 40% of the population of malnutrition. I didn't see any sign of that. I can't say malnutrition doesn't exist, but I have seen big parts of the country and it doesn't appear to be emaciated people. It doesn't appear to be shortages of food. But, you know, I can't say with confidence because... Um, but I'm just curious about how the Western countries and even the UN get these figures of people starving. It's not apparent. In fact, the immediate impression from arriving in the country is it's a very green, lush country. It's true that the north of the peninsula is much more mountainous and has less uh, agricultural area than the south, which was traditionally the breadbasket, and the north was the, the mining area and the industrial area and so on. And they do have great industrial capacity there, and they have great educational capacity. One of the things that's most striking, if you go on a tour, and they, of course they take you to, the, to some of their best facilities, but in the capital there's tremendous investment in education and um, the facilities for children, the school facilities, the after-hour schools, uh, school for children's facilities, the achievements of young people in international education systems. You know, they have international Olympiads and maths and so on. The Koreans are nailing a lot of that. They have a tremendously well-educated young population. So the infrastructure, in many respects, is much higher than you'd imagine for their, their GDP per capita. Going to some of the the rural towns and the other cities like Wonsan on the east coast, you see similar sorts of things, amazing public facilities, public facilities. Of course, traditionally it's been said in socialist countries, 
they get very good development of public services and public facilities at the expense of consumer power. That's definitely true. It's not a consumer society like most socialist societies did effectively starve their consumer societies to build up their their public health and their public education facilities. That's a, a common theme you see in socialist countries. But I always took with a grain of salt the stories about North Korea because it's something that we've lived a lifetime of propaganda with. So it's, it's interesting, I think, and I think more people should take advantage of the opportunity. You can visit the country. You can go around and see things. You can, you can talk to people. Of course, they don't want you taking pictures of military facilities and so on. But I think a lot of the stories about the gulags are grossly exaggerated. We saw a, a really disgraceful report by an Australian judge, Michael Kirby, who pretended to judge the entire country without hearing the other side at all. Of course, the North Koreans didn't want to talk to him, but one of his star witnesses was one of these defectors who since recanted everything he said he wasn't in the Camp 14 he said he was in. You know, So these stories are really, really poisoned people's minds as to any sort of open inquiry into into what the reality is for the people and the most important thing to understand I think is that human beings live in that country they're trying to live in that country under the circumstances that they're in they they face a hundred years of war the threat of war they definitely want reunification of the country the major obstacle to that is the US military occupation of the peninsula people in the north and south want it you've seen the two presidents talking about it this year when the stories about gulags come out, I mean, I think the first thing people have to remember is there is one country on earth that has the highest prison population, the highest rate of prison population, and that's the USA, the source of these stories. So how seriously can we take stories about the mass imprisonment and treatment of prisoners from a country which is obviously, based on independent evidence, the worst in the world in this respect? Much better, I think, to try and maintain an open mind and go and see what the Korean people are really living through. Are family reunions still happening? There's been um, a couple of windows where they happen because in the South, basically there's a faction of the elite which is affected by the popular sentiment for reunification, including the current president, President Moon. He is one who's supported the reunification idea, but there are another faction that I suppose realise that their bread is buttered by having the US there and the US collaboration makes it more lucrative for them and they like to shut down or sabotage these initiatives. Um, so the initiative from 2000 and the early 2000s up to 2007 was to create this road rail links, create joint industrial zones, create uh, new air, air links, uh, create tourist zones and so on. There was a very big plan of things and it was all shut down because a new regime came into power in the south one of the leaders of that is in jail now, a woman whose father was one of the early military dictators in South Korea. So there's been a toing and froing in the South there, but now as of this year and the, the big diplomatic uh, initiatives this year, a lot of that is back on track and the talks are going on as we speak and there are some exchanges going on. I think it's going to have a very big impact on people to see large numbers of people from the South emerging from the metro in Pyongyang, you know, visiting for cultural and sporting and commercial exchanges. You know, both sides are open to at the moment and I'm waiting to see where is the where is the problem, where is the sabotage going to come from for this process. But at the moment, there's a type of honeymoon going on between the north and the south and that's really the most hopeful sign for the peninsula. And of course, there are plenty of people in the south who are opposed to the US controlling their country. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but it's criminalised there. They, they're in jail if they try and establish links with the North. You know, they say that about the North, but it's the same thing about the South. People can be jailed for have developing links with the North. Sorry, I missed your point about the family reunions. There are some plans now for some new family reunions, but that's part of the packages, I suppose, where they're talking about a number of important initiatives, including this infrastructure initiative to have the to reopen the um, the rail and road and, and air links from the north to the south and then in in those circumstances then more large-scale exchange can take place at the moment the family reunions like the north-south summit earlier this year were at um that border town where there's a, effectively a, a little village has been set up with military posts on both sides and there's a you know the negotiation tables in the middle the exchanges happen in that sort of rarefied military circumstance but when the cultural and boarding and commercial exchanges take place, they're going to be happening more in the capitals, basically, people emerging in Seoul, people emerging in Pyongyang. That's really, as I say, happening as we speak, and I think I suspect that in the next few months we're going to see, well, depending on how the media reports it, this is a, this is a major problem, of course, that it's going to be spun, all of this news is spun, but as I said, there's really a great honeymoon going on, and it, it affects most people in the South, and... Um, I think there's a, there's a huge emotional reaction to see. For example, just just to cover what happened early this year, maybe the listeners aren't up with it really. But the first thing, you know, last year there was the talk of nuclear war. Things were terribly tense. When I was in Korea, the Westerners were asking the North about these sorts of things, you know. But then the Winter Olympics came along, and, and uh, some new openings emerged to the point where they had that North-South summit, where the presidents of the North and South met. Um, at the border, and uh, the, the president Kim from the north stepped across that little that little part in where the, where the negotiation tables are and so on. That attracted massive attention in in the Korean media. After that, the, the Winter Olympics, then the where there was uh, North Korean delegation there in the south, the North South Summit. Then there were three summit meetings, very important summit meetings between the North Korean leader, the young North Korean leader, and the grandson of Kim Il Sung, and the Chinese Premier, three summits with the Chinese Premier. Now, that that all happened before the summit in Singapore with President Trump. And, of course, the Western media paid a lot of attention to the meeting with President Trump. But in my view, the three summits with the Chinese leader were probably far more important for the future of the country. China's, after all, the biggest neighbour to North Korea. It's the potentially the largest commercial partner. Uh, when I was there last month, there was a, a mini-boom in tourism from China, as you'd expect. This is a country with 1.3 billion people with a large land border with Korea, and their attention was attracted by the publicity, and so most of the tourism going into Korea, North Korea now is, is from China. And another thing we're not told about is the growing peace movement in the South. Yes, well, as I say, that's been subject to military repression, but it feeds off and is linked to the, the mood that um, you look at the opinion polls, just go and search the opinion polls there. While the, the US media may spin it, you'll find very consistently that about 80% of people in South Korea want reunification. And when the US media tries to spin it, or some of the South Korean media also tries to spin it, they will say that the young people are less convinced so you go to the polls on the young people, and yes, there's only about 78% are convinced of reunification. But that was before the, the summits of this year. So the climate has, has changed quite a lot, and Time magazine earlier this year, for example, also reported that 
80% of South Koreans uh, felt they could trust Kim Jong-un, the North leader. Now, that's, a, that's an even more extraordinary figure there, basically, to have trust in the man apart from hoping for something better in the future. So really, um, there are some quite dramatic emotional changes going on, and it remains to be seen, you know, to what extent they're going to be turned into reality. But it, it's imminent, I, I believe. I think there'll be some important exchanges, and the question really is how the Western media is going to report those changes. Finally, Tim, did you travel to North Korea with Australian students? Yeah, I've been twice now. The first time I went through a cultural relations program, you have to travel in a group to North Korea. You can't um, just go as an individual backpacker, for example. So the main groups are tourist groups, but there's also a group which is, deals with cultural exchanges and political solidarity and so on, some other, other forms of, of exchange. And we went with them. There we had a little bit more freedom in terms of filming and taking photos and interviewing people and so on. The first time I was with a couple of international activists and a filmmaker last year, and this time I went with five other young Australians, all much younger than me, all between 21 and 30, and that was their first experience of... But they were internationals. They were all young people who had experience with other cultures and people who were able to respect and listen to other cultures. So it was a, it was a small group of six, yeah. But on social media recently, they've been posting their videos and so on. Um, we had the the benefit also of being able to talk to some independent people in North Korea who lived there. We had a tour which we pretty much commissioned. We They gave us pretty much what we wanted. We said we wanted to go to outside the capital. We wanted to go to one of the other parts of the country. We went to Wonsan on the east coast. It's like a, a summer resort place, quite a big city in some ways. We went to rural areas, cooperatives, schools, hospitals and so on. We asked for a lot of those things and they basically gave us most of what we wanted, as well as the, the famous museums and so on. Thanks so much, Tim. No problems. And that was Dr Tim Anderson, recently back from Korea. That's all I have for today, but I will be back next Tuesday at four, and coming up in about two minutes' time, you'll be able to hear Done By Law. Bye for now.